We are currently studying the Gospel of John, verse by verse, and this morning we enter into John chapter 19 at verse 31. So if you would, please open your Bibles to the 31st verse of John chapter 19. Now, we've witnessed over the weeks the sovereignty of Jesus Christ over his betrayal, the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ over his arrest, over his trial, over his crucifixion, and his absolute sovereign control over his death. And this morning, we will look at his sovereign control over his dead body on the cross. We pick up the account in verse 31. Jesus just breathed his last. He said, it is finished. And Luke's account tells us that just prior to saying it is finished, he said, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Actually, after he said it is finished. Verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate let their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Heavenly Father, I again beseech you, Lord, and ask for your anointing now that you'll grace me to communicate your divine truth in the power of the Holy Spirit. That you also, Father, I ask, would grant your people this morning, the church, a passionate desire to understand the depths of the cross. The requirement of your death that they would grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for those here this morning who are dead, spiritually dead, by your grace, may you awaken them to life in Christ. That you, Lord, by your grace, would cause them to be true believers, born again of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pierced but not broken. That's the title of the message. One certainty of life for the saved, as well as the unsaved, is death. The Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. The most certain fact about life is, my friends, Death. There's nothing in life that you and I will be more certain of than the fact that we will die. And death terrifies people more than anything else. That is why the book of Hebrews, the writer tells us that it is the fear of death that has held men in bondage all their life long. The most we know about our future is that we will die. But we neither determine nor do we know when that moment will come. 
There are people who are so gripped by the fear of death, they actually, in a very twisted way, commit suicide in order to rob death of its uncertainty. They foolishly think that killing themselves frees them from the grip of the unknown. But yet they will step into the unknown outside of Christ where there's wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell. Forever. It's the element of death's dominion that produces anxiety inside of many. Death interrupts. Death is the great intruder. Death never comes at the right time. It never comes when we're ready. It comes before our relationships are what they should be. It comes before our dreams are fulfilled. It comes for many before their hopes are realized. Death comes before our children have accomplished what we desire for them. It comes before we've made things right with a friend. It comes before we've asked forgiveness of the families that we love. It comes before we're able to say what we wanted to say to somebody who truly mattered to us. That's how death is. Death is the great intruder. Death is indeed, as it's been said, the king of terrors. For Jesus... Death was no surprise. Death never controlled him, but he controlled every aspect of it. Jesus died only when he commanded death to take his life. Death could not take him apart from his own will. Regardless of how long you will to live, you have no control over your death. None whatsoever. You could die on the way home today, beloved. Verse 30 of John 19, it reads, When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head. Meaning in the Greek that he pillowed his head, as it were, in a pillow. and then yielded up his spirit. It happens, happens in reverse order for us. We give up our spirit, and then we bow our head. Jesus controlled his death. And to all of us who are in Christ, Jesus says, because I live, you will live also. Because of that, the fear of death is removed, and we can say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is... Christ, and to die is gain. One has to be truly saved in order to save that. You have to be in Christ to be able to say that. You have to be covered in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ to be able to believe that in your heart. Jesus died at the very split second that it was determined that he would go. He was no victim. Never, ever think that Jesus was a victim of death. He is death's victor. Conqueror. He was on a divine timetable. And as we'll see, it was very abnormal for an individual who was crucified to die as soon as Jesus died. Very unusual. In fact, the thieves are still living when Jesus is dead. Now, much attention is given here in John's gospel over the dead body of Jesus. And we must spend some time here because the Holy Spirit spent some time here. <clears throat> John's post-mortem examination of Jesus is given a great deal of attention right here in John's Gospel. It's heavily emphasized, likely because in the first century, there was a heresy that was running wild known as docetism. 
And docetism was a, a heresy that denied the actual humanity of Jesus Christ. They said he only appeared to be human. Docetism comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to seem as or appears to be. They taught that since he only appeared to be human, he therefore also only appeared to die. So the greatest heresy of the first century was not a denial of the the deity of Jesus Christ, but rather a denial of the humanity of Jesus Christ. It's reversed today. Most people say Jesus was just a man, and they deny the fact that he was God in the flesh. Now, John's Gospel was written a number of decades after the death and resurrection of our Lord. It was written in Ephesus, and in those years, this terrible heresy began to circulate. But what we must see is that Jesus, who was fully God, was also fully man, and he had to die according to the scriptures. He's the only individual that's ever been 200% of something. 100% man, 100% God. And the Holy Spirit, as I said, he's gone to great lengths here to convey for us the details regarding the death and the burial of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there's no gospel about the death of Christ. He had to literally die. And as we've seen over the past few weeks, all those Old Testament rituals, all those Old Testament ceremonies merely foreshadowed and signified a greater reality, the one who was to come. And we see clearly in those Old Testament pictures and and foreshadowings, we see the concept of substitution through blood sacrifice. This was central in the mind of God and then therefore conveyed to Israel, God's people. I mean, why a blood sacrifice? See, to the Jews, the shedding of blood meant the giving of life. And Jesus had to give his life in order to save sinners from the grip of death and hell. People ask, could could Jesus have saved people by just you know, like scratching his finger on a nail and bleeding? Just a, just a drop of blood? Well, his blood would have just as, been just as holy, regardless of the amount. However, a drop of blood could not have saved sinners. God's requirement was not simply a drop of his holy, untainted, sinless blood, but rather his blood had to be shed. Punishment for sin was death, not merely wounds. That which was required of God for the transgressions against God was the death of the perpetrator. All have fallen, all all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin, therefore, is it's death. It's death. So the blood sacrifices that we see throughout the Old Testament weren't intended to simply bleed, but they were intended to die. Death. For life is in the blood. Leviticus 17.11 reads, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. Now listen to this. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, came to die. He came to lay his life down. Jesus said again, I've said it for many weeks, no man takes my life, I lay it down freely. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to die. And I have the power to raise it up again. His hour came. And his hour was an hour to bear the wrath of the Father, to experience the punishment of hell upon Calvary, Golgotha, the place of the skull, the cross, where he would suffer separation from the Father, incurring only the Father's wrath, darkness, as the Father would turn his face from the Son. 
That's what Jesus agonized over in the garden, beloved. It wasn't this physical torture. It was that he would experience the punishment of hell, the wrath of his father on the cross in place of many. For he came to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Now, I want to read to you a poem that was sent to me this week by one of our members. And this caused me to think of what a blessing the people of this church are. The blessings of the ministries here. The blessings of the fruit of the ministries here. Now, we have a small group of women that, that organize and uh, are the visionaries for the women's ministry. They, they plan and they organize all the women's events, all the teachings, and w- one of which is the yearly annual um, women's retreat. They assign the teachers from this body um, their text to teach or the topic that they'll teach. And the fruit of that produced a teaching by one of ours here, um, Dawn Rogers. And she, she, she spoke of, in her message, the angel who came to minister to Jesus in Gethsemane. And I received an email here this week from Elizabeth Busby. And she wrote, Dawn, when she spoke of the angel who came to minister to Jesus in Gethsemane, after the teaching, gave us an hour of silence and meditation. The following poem is what came out of my time with the Lord. Hope, it's an encouragement to you. Such an encouragement it was to me that I shall now share it with you. Entitled, Ministry in the Garden, Luke twenty-two forty-three, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. The angel Manoah waited eagerly for word. Manoah uh, is a fictitious name here. The, the, word, the, the name means rest. Okay? The angel Manoah waited eagerly for word. From down in Gethsemane, the son's voice had been heard. Might I be the one chosen to go to minister to my master so far below? The father's voice beckoned, go see to the Lord. Manoah tightened his sandals and he reached for his sword. The look on God's face, though, made it quite clear there would be no fighting, for the hour was here. The moment for which all heaven had waited, the depths of agony and sorrow unable to be appreciated. How could the father abandon his son? But for this very hour, the world had begun. Manoah, seeing the drops of blood on Christ's face, burned with passionate anger anger over such a disgrace. He came to his Lord, wiping the sweat from his brow. He glanced back to heaven, wondering how. How could the father turn his back like this and allow Judas to betray the Lord with a kiss? Oh, Jesus, he cried, this whole thing breaks my heart. Never fear, Manoah. I knew this end from the start. This bitter cup of his wrath must be drunk to atone for the children of dust my father will call his own. My body must be broken, my blood must be spilled, the father's holy justice satisfied only if I'm killed. Manoah laid his hand on Jesus looking in his eyes trying to offer comfort amidst the anguished cries. This can't be the way Manoah refused to believe the father's unwillingness, his son's pain to relieve. But Manoah completed his task and returned to his place, praying all earth's creatures realize the costliness of grace. Beautiful. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 10 says that the predicted sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow was revealed to the prophets of old. That they were not serving themselves, the scripture says, but you, meaning believers, this side of the cross. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Did you get that? Things in which angels long to look. The knowledge and the experience of our redemption is limited for angels. 
and they longed to fully understand what was accomplished on Calvary. Why? Because they do not personally understand grace, for they have no need of grace. But what's beautiful is God's plan is made known to the angels of heaven. The principalities above is made known through this, the church of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? We studied this if you were with us three years ago in Ephesians. Chapter 3, verse 10 of Ephesians reads, To the intent now that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of which was accomplished right here on the cross through his death. The Lord of glory. The God-man, Christ Jesus. When he cried, it is finished, that was the proclamation that the way into the holiest of holies, the very presence of God, was open to all who come on the merits of the shed blood of the Lamb of God. It's the only way to have access to God, friends. You're either in Christ and covered by his blood, or you are outside and at war with God. Now, other events that occurred at the moment of his death, we know that the earth was covered in darkness for three hours as he hung there. The temple veil of the Holy of Holies was torn from the top to the bottom. There was great, a great earthquake that split rocks down the middle and many believers of the past were resurrected. Would you be tripping out if you saw your great-granddaddy whom you've only seen pictures of? After Christ resurrected from the dead, they came into town. There was the centurion who's in charge of the crucifixion. He gives testimony, truly this was the Son of God. So here again, friends, we witness the overruling hand of God over the dead body of the God-man. Jesus has complete control over his dead body, complete control over his burial. Now remember, Jesus declared that he would be Buried and raised on the third day. So he had to be buried the same day that he died. And we'll see the significance of this as we move through here. But what we're about to study was not the norm for a crucified man. But once again, it's God who makes the wickedness of men unconsciously carry out the purposes to promote his glory. It's been well said that even the demonic enemies of God become the axes, the saws, and hammers in his hand, ignorantly becoming his instruments for doing his work in this world, end quote. Now, if you notice our study last week, John takes one verse to narrate the death of Christ. It is finished. Followed by seven verses that have to do what follows afterwards with his Dead body hanging on the cross. That's why we're going to land here this morning. You get no further than this. This is so that we understand that Jesus really did die. And if he truly died, then he was truly a man. And once again, in John's day, certain heretics were denying the humanity of Jesus Christ. He had to be a man. He had to be a real man and God at the same time. So what I would like for us to see this morning is, is the sovereign control of Christ over his dead body and burial. This is outlined for in your bulletin, verses 31 to 37. What we see here is the dead body of Jesus under the watch of his enemies. And you'll notice that not one literal hand of the enemies of Christ touch the dead body of the Lord. They'll jab him with a spear, but they will not touch his body with their hands. In verses 38 to 42, we see the dead body of Jesus in the hands of his loved ones. That is outlined for in your bulletin. 
save it for next time because we won't make it that far. But you also notice that it's only the hands of those who love Christ that ever touch his dead body. It's only the hands of those who love Christ that touch his resurrected body. It's only the eyes of those who truly believed in Christ that would see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. There is no record of an unbeliever seeing the Lord of glory raised from the dead. But now notice first, as we move into our study, the anxiety of the Jews over the removal of Christ's body from the cross. And what we see here is God's sovereign control over hypocritical religious scruples. The Lord's sovereign control over hypocritical religious scruples. Look here at verse 31. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, when it says the Jews, what's meant here is is the chief priests, uh, the Pharisees, you would have Annas, Caiaphas, the uh, Jewish religious hierarchy of the day. They're the ones going before Pilate, making their request. Religious people. You don't get any more religious than this. See, friends, it's a, it, it, it's a great mistake to think that the wicked are always the irreligious. The, the priority, this religious priority of these Jews just reeks with hypocrisy and disgust. Some of the most wicked people in the world have been and are religious people. There are multitudes of people who will, are willing to strap to their body explosives and go press a button and detonate themselves along with a room full of innocent people. There are numerous people who've been convinced to wrap themselves in explosives and go detonate themselves along with a group of innocent people. And yet those very same people will bow down to Mecca five times a day. Religious, you don't get more religious than that. Much of the Catholic hierarchy throughout the years burned men at the stake for preaching and printing the word of God to get into the hands of the common folk. William Tyndale, the reason that you have the English Bible in your laps this morning, was strangled and burned at the stake by Catholic leadership. Religion. Here now it's the day before Sabbath. The most religious day of the year. Not an ordinary Sabbath. It wasn't like most Sabbaths. This was the high day, meaning that it was not just another Sabbath. This was Passover Sabbath. So, it had a certain sacredness above all other Sabbaths. A special high day. And the Jews, very much aware of the next day, that it was indeed the holy day, wanted those dead bodies removed before sunset, when the Sabbath would commence. Now, seemingly, Pilate would have allowed these bodies to remain on the cross for several days, even after they were dead. Oftentimes, a crucified criminal would hang there for days before he even died. It would draw wild animals, buzzards, vultures, and it would, would, would warn those people, those who would observe this, it would warn them, if you defy Rome, this will happen to you. Crime doesn't pay. So the Jews feared here that unless they took active measure to prevent it, the body of Jesus would remain there overnight. And if his body was to hang there, their law would be broken. Their religious law would be broken. They didn't want the holy land to be defiled by the dead. And what they most likely had in their mind here was Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22, reads, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. 
For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Jesus, remember, became a curse in our place. So that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, incidentally, the Jews' method of capital punishment was stoning. Now, that had been taken away from them about the time of Christ. But prior to that, when they did stone someone, once they were dead, they would hang them on a tree. Again, as an example, crime does not pay. Sin does not pay. This is like the pirates of the 18th century. They would hang them in chains for passing ships to sea. Piracy does not pay. I'd be very content if we still hanged criminals publicly. If they're 100% guilty and you know they're guilty, hang them. Let them hang there. Child molesters, hang them. Rip off little children, hang them. Murderers, and they're guilty, hang them. You think that would cut down crime? (laughs) It's another sermon, though. So the law stated that such a criminal was not to hang overnight on a tree. He should be buried that day. For he who hangs is cursed of God. Now, their concern was, that again, that the land wouldn't be defiled during this great religious feast because these dead bodies would hang in view. They would see them from the temple. They didn't want that, even though it was outside the city gates. So these religiously zealous fools have killed the the son of the living God. They've rejected the reality of their own Messiah. And by doing this, they defy and deny the God that they profess with their mouth. The teachers of Israel, they're defying the God that they claim to know. They are blasphemers of the worst kind. But yet they remain material meticulously convinced to to maintain every little form of their religious ceremonies. So in order to uphold the most minute details of their law, these strict legalists now go to Pilate. They ask that the death of these criminals be hastened. So the soldiers do exactly as they're instructed. So we move from God's sovereignty over the religiously hypocritical scruples of these men to God's sovereign control over the ignorantly involved soldiers. They're just carrying on his business as usual. Notice verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. So at this point, they enact further punishment, which means that they would take a heavy iron mallet, and they would crush the bones of the legs of these men hanging on the cross. Now, this would accelerate death. Because as you were to hang there, in order to take a breath, you would have to push yourself up and push out your rib rib cage to take in a breath. So, to accelerate death, you crush the bones of the legs. They're unable to lift themselves up, and they therefore will die of asphyxiation. There's two sinners, both suffering on either side of Christ. One is saved, one is lost. One of them cried out saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. He will proceed to hell. The other who began mocking in the first place had a change of heart probably after they put the placard over the Lord of Glory's head that read, Jesus the Nazarene, King of the Jews, the Gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly I say to you, in three days because that's probably how long you'll last on the cross, you'll be with me in paradise. He did not say that. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. 
This man was graced to be delivered from eternal misery, from hell, but not from suffering in this life. He could do no good works with his hands because they were nailed to the cross. He could not let his hands and feet serve the Lord Jesus Christ because they were nailed to the cross. He couldn't go get baptized because he was nailed to the cross. He had more suffering to experience before he stepped into paradise with his master. J.C. Ryle comments on this, and it's noteworthy that we pay attention to this. Quote, It is noteworthy that the penitent thief, after his conversion, had more suffering to go through before he entered into paradise. The grace of God and the pardon of sin did not deliver him from the agony of having his legs broken. When Christ undertakes to save our souls, he does not undertake to deliver us from bodily pains and conflict with the last enemy. Penitence, as well as impenitence, must taste death. End quote. Remember that when you watch these evangelistic freaks on TV, the health, the wealth, and prosperity gospel teachers, that God doesn't want you to suffer. And if you're a true Christian, you shouldn't suffer. And if you have true faith, you shouldn't suffer. And you will be rich. So long as you send our ministry your money, I guarantee a tenfold blessing on you. In the name of Jesus. This man did suffer. But this man suffered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ accredited to him. These Roman soldiers, all the while, were unwitting agents for fulfilling the very promise of Christ, for which he said, today you will be with me in paradise. They have no clue what they're doing here. Now, after dealing with these two convicts, they approach the sinless son of God. Notice verse 33. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. The Lord Jesus and the two thieves had been crucified together. They'd been on their respective crosses the same length of time. And since execution by crucifixion was usually a slow death, although very, very painful, since there was no vital bodily organ directly affected, as I said, these thieves or anyone crucified would hang there sometimes for days. So this was not natural, as I said at the beginning of the message, that Christ should be dead only after six hours on the cross. It was so unnatural that you'll recall in Mark's account that Pilate marveled that he was already dead. Mark chapter 15, verse 44. He was very surprised. So the request of the Jews to Pilate shows that they were not expecting any of them to die that day unless their legs be broken. Who's in control here? It's not Pilate, it's not the soldiers, it's Almighty God, according to His decree, His Word, His prophetic, glorious Word. So, when the soldiers come to Jesus, it's obvious He's already dead. The two thieves are still alive, and this again gives us further demonstration that Christ's life was not taken from Him, but He laid it down. The lives of the thieves were taken. Jesus' life was not taken. Verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. Excuse me. Now, this was obviously a, a significant penetration into the side of our Lord. And the focal point for John here is that Jesus was indeed a man in that he did literally die. You have dark red fluid, you have clear fluid gushing forth from a body that was dead. D.A. Carson comments on this. And he writes, quote, In tests performed on cadavers, it has been shown that where a chest has been severely injured but without penetration... Hemorrhagic fluid, 
up to two liters of it gathers between the pleural lining, the rib cage, and the lining of the lung. This separates the clear serum at the top, the deep red layer at the bottom. If the chest cavity were then pierced at the bottom, both layers would flow out. Carson continues, however the medical experts work this out, there can be little doubt that the evangelist is emphasizing Jesus' death, his death as a man, his death beyond any shadow of a doubt. Verse 35. And he who has seen, John interjects now, in the middle of this narrative, John the author interjects and he writes, he who has seen has testified, his testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may what? Believe. Yes, he was God, but oh yes, he was a man. And I witnessed this. So the importance of verse 34 is emphasized here in verse 35, that the eyewitness testimony of Jesus' death John says, I was there. <laughs> John vouches as an eyewitness to the flowing blood and water of the Savior's pierced side. He's witness to the literal death of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm witnessing to what is true. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth so that you may believe. I saw it. I was at the cross. I bore witness of this death, the death of this man. See, this is a death of messianic significance. This has to be recorded in the gospel. He had to die. And you know that John had run, run-ins with these, with these docetic teachings. Think about this. The death of Jesus is the counterpoint of John's prologue, John chapter 1, verse 14. Okay, the chapter begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through Him and by Him. Nothing was made that was made without Him. And then in verse 14, the Word became what? Flesh. The Word, the Logos, eternal God, became flesh. He became a man. All true believers, beloved, believe in the divine Son of God and that He possessed a human body, that He possessed a human nature. Sinless, but a human nature. So in, in order to be true in the faith, sound in the faith, i.e. a true believer, one must believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Fully God, fully man, the only way to the Father. You don't believe that? You're not a believer. You're not saved. Second John 7 reads, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. See the problem in this day? This is John's second epistle. This, John says, is the deceiver and the antichrist. Now, what we also might see here in the blood and the water is some symbolic significance that some guys can get carried away with this. But Matthew Henry, that great Puritan of old, does a great job here, and it's worth sharing. He said this, quote, The blood and water signified the two great benefits which all believers partake of through Christ, justification and sanctification. Blood stands for remission, water for regeneration. Blood for atonement, water for purification. The two must always go together, end quote, and, and a big old amen, amen to that because it's so scripturally sound. So what we see, notice these, the free, unconstrained actions of these sinful men are fulfilling the prophetic word of God. Notice, next verse, verse 36. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Now, had Jesus not died when he did, they would have broken his legs. Had he be, been living at the moment the two thieves were living, they'd have broken his legs. They'd have taken the iron mallet and crushed his legs. But if that would have happened, beloved, had one single bone of our Lord have been broken, the Bible in your laps would have 
carried along with it prophetic error. Lies. Despite the order of Pilate, the soldiers would not break the legs of the Lord of glory. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, although there's all these great complexities with, within the Old Testament prophecies, all came to pass perfectly. Very complex. Now, the complexity here is this. Number one, his hands and his feet had to be pierced. Psalm 22, verse 16. The Messiah's hands and feet had to be pierced. Now, the second complexity here is that although his hands and feet had to be pierced, not a bone of him would be broken. Psalm 34.20 says, He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. This psalm describes God's care for the righteous man. For the righteous man, he protects all his bones. Also, with regard to the Old Testament law, it's specified, as Mark read from this morning, that no bone of the Passover lamb was to be broken. The preservation of Christ's bones was the fulfillment of the ancient type. The type being that sacrificial lamb. Exodus 12.46 Now remember, the chapter opens with the command of Israel to slay the lamb, take that hyssop branch, and take its blood, and put it on the doorposts and on the lentil, because the wrath of God would pass over and every house of Egypt would suffer death of the eldest of each family. All livestock, the oldest, dead. But where the blood of the lamb was, the wrath of God passed over. Exodus 12.46 goes on to say, In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not carry any of the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. So think about it. From the time of that command to the time of Christ, for 1,500 years, Israel had strictly upheld the Passover observance not to break one bone. And none of them, as far as we know, had any idea with regard to its meaning. But now the Holy Spirit explains it, doesn't he? The antitype has come. The shadows fulfilled. Christ, the ultimate lamb, slain, not a bone of him would be broken. Verse 37. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Now, this is a quotation from Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. If you would turn back there. If you're in John, just go back to Matthew and go back two books from Matthew. Zechariah chapter 12. Now, the prophet Zechariah said that the Messiah would also be pierced. Now, here in verse 37, notice it says in John, it says they they shall look upon him whom they pierced. The him there is Yahweh. That means almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. Him they would look upon who is pierced. Now, notice Zechariah 12 so that we understand the context of this. Look at verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Notice verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Israel the spirit of grace, of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. So the me of verse 10 is the creator of verse 1, prophecy fulfilled. (laughs) I've already quoted John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him. By Him nothing was made that was made. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, referring to Jesus Christ, for by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He was the one that they would look upon. He's the one that would be pierced. So what do we see here again, beloved? 
once again, week after week, we see the Bible is not just another book. It's the inspired word of God. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. Quote, The fulfillment of all these complex prophecies are very improbable. Here are Roman soldiers acting freely and unconstrained. And as they drive the spikes home, okay, don't miss this. As they drive the spikes home, they don't miss and break any bone. You ever smash your thumb with a hammer? You miss? They would not miss. They don't miss and break any bone. As the spikes penetrate the flesh, they slide between the bones. As they break the legs of the other men, they pass by Jesus. They act freely, they act naturally, they act with no outward constraint, and yet they're acting in fulfillment of the scriptures, and they don't even know it. Unbeknownst to them, they're acting to fulfill prophetic scripture. They have not a clue. Spurgeon continues. Shall we never be able to drive into men's minds the truth that predestination and free agency are both facts? Men sin as freely as birds fly in the air and are altogether responsible for their sins and yet everything is ordained by God. That's a big end quote, Mr. Spurgeon. So the piercing of the Savior's Savior's side here demonstrates the sovereignty of God. He was in absolute control over every act of those fallen creatures below the cross. Now, the soldier had received instruction to break the legs of Christ, but he did not follow through. Had he done so, Scripture would have been broken. (laughs) All right, now, more amazing than that, on the other hand, if you think about this, the soldier had not received orders to pierce the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. Had he not pierced him, Scripture would not have been fulfilled. Prophecy broken. Jesus had declared that he would be buried and would raise three days after his burial. Now, in order to fill this, he must be buried the same day that he died. So once again, the Lord's enemies, they're unconsciously here executing God's divine decree. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin there, along with the Roman soldiers, they are fulfilling scripture according to God's plan. Who's in control here? A dead body on the cross, the Lord of glory, Jesus is in control. No man's in control of this. So over and over again, we see that not a word of his failed. I have a question for you. Do you believe this? Do you truly believe this? I'm not talking about the facts here today, beloved. Do you believe this gospel truth? In other words, do you know Christ? Do you know the author of this truth? Do you know the author of the prophetic scripture? Do you know the fulfillment of this prophetic scripture? Do you personally know the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you covered by the blood of Jesus Christ? Is this going in one year and out the other? Are you saved? Have you been born again? Have you repented of your sin? Have you surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ? You sit here, you nod your head with the facts. Are you a blood-bought child of God? What's your excuse? hypocrites in the church. That's why. That's not your excuse. Your excuse is that you love your sin. You love the world. You don't know Christ. I bid you to come to the cross. You come to Christ right where you sit. Jesus died as a true man. Jesus died as a true man in the place of true sinners. That's what we are. So without Christ being a real man, there could be no real death. Without Jesus Christ being a real man, there could be no real death. There's no real sacrificial substitute, you see. 
There's no true lamb. Without the real death, there would be no real resurrection, would there? Without a real resurrection, there'd be no Christianity. Without true Christianity, there's no way of salvation. We'd be standing on shifty sand. Christ died. But you see, we, beloved, we don't stop with the dead Christ, do we? You notice there's no crucifixes around here? You ever notice that? There's no crucifix outside the cross outside the building there? There's nobody on it. There's no one depicted to be on it. You'll never see me wearing a crucifix. You won't see crucifixes in the bathroom. You won't see them in the hallway. You won't see them in the fellowship hall. You won't see them in the classrooms. Jesus Christ died, and without his death, there's no gospel. Without his resurrection, there's no gospel either. Without him being fully man, there's no gospel. Without him being fully God, there's no gospel. Beloved brethren, believers, you who are truly in Christ, are you living as an ever thankful recipient of the sacrifice that he paid for you on the cross? Do you live your life in subject to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? led by the Spirit of God according to the Word of God, continually allowing your thinking to be lined up and transformed to the Word of God because of what He did? Not to gain favor in His sight, but to to submit yourself at the foot of the cross to the Lord of glory who died for you. I hope so. I want to close by reiterating the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. That great Apostle Paul, a wretched, wretched sinner, just like the guy who's addressing you this morning, saved by grace, just like the guy who's addressing you this morning. Verse 1, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren, notice that 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. I mean that many of them died by the time Paul penned this. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. You know who's speaking here? A man who was rabid with persecution against the church of Jesus Christ. He hated Christ, and he hated those who were of the way, followers of Christ. He was actually on his way to arrest Christians. Documents in hand. And the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, met him, came after him. And then he became the greatest declarer of truth that the church of Jesus Christ has ever known, the Apostle Paul. So Jesus died, beloved, not because of religious or political mistakes. He died ultimately, never miss this, Jesus died ultimately for God. Jesus died ultimately for the Father. That's why. In order to pay for our sins. The true Passover lamb was pierced and a bone of him would not be broken. It was not possible. He was sacrificed, but no man took his life. He laid it down. And again, in Exodus, the blood of the lamb that covered God's people, 
is God's judgment was unleashed. Those who were covered by the blood, he passed over. Hence, where we get the name, Passover. See, we worship the lamb who was slain. Question, are you covered by the blood? Are you covered by the blood of the lamb? Do you trust only in him? Because religion, morality, good deeds, you know who they save? Nobody. If you're here and you think you're a good person, let me remind you what the Bible says. Perhaps you've never heard it. There is none good, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, including the second death, which is hell. You must be covered by the blood of the Lamb, because only the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, covers sins, removes sins, while he appeases the wrath of the Father. He passes over the sinner, you see. You know what the, you, you, you know what the sacrifice, sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ does for us, beloved? It expiates our sins. Expiation means that it removes our sin. That's the horizontal work of the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you're in Christ, your sins have been expiated. They're removed. But that wasn't enough. The Lamb of God at the same time had to propitiate for the sins of men. Meaning, in a vertical sense, he had to please the Father's wrath. You see the cross? He satisfied God the Father by way of propitiation, which means satisfaction. He satisfied the wrath of God while expiating our sins. The cross work of the Lamb who was slain. So scripture tells us that death produces fear in every heart. And that kind of fear is enslaving. A fear which... There seems to be no escape. Apart from, of course, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that we'll save for next time. Amen. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we thank you now, again, for the grace that has been granted to each one of us who are in Christ here this morning. We thank you for the eternal decree which you set forth by speaking your word in that your Son, the eternal Son of Almighty God would be crucified, would be crushed, would be pierced, but yet a bone of him would not be broken. Lord, the the minute details of Scripture are overwhelming. And I thank you, I thank you, I praise you for, for granting us, Lord, the eyes to see and the ears to hear Uh, Those truths, Lord, revealed through the scriptures. Thank you for giving us, Lord, a spirit that knows we're saved. For your spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And Lord, I first pray for your church this morning, your dear people, those who sit here covered in the righteous robes of your Son, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. May they grow in confidence, Lord, And what took place on Calvary? What took place on that cross? What your death means? May we be ever more grateful for your work there on Calvary so that we can be ever more victorious in our own personal walks with Christ because of the resurrection. And for those who've walked in here this morning, perhaps shocked and stunned, hearing the gospel for the first time, perhaps they've heard it 50 times. They believe the facts. But they don't believe into you. 
I pray by your grace that you would cause them, Lord, to become true believers at this moment, that you would, by your grace, fall upon them in a mighty way, grant them repentance, grant them the ability to believe, remove the veil from their eyes, the scales from their eyes, take out the heart of stone, replace it with a heart of flesh, we pray. And Lord, for those who walk out of here yet unchanged, I pray that you would burden them, that you would not leave them alone. Crush them, that their souls would be saved. Thank you for the beautiful, glorious, blood-stained cross of your Son, our Savior, our Master, our Lord, Almighty God, Yahweh, Logos in the flesh, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we come to you. It's in his name we pray. It's in his name we serve. It's in his name we study. We rejoice. And all God's people together say, Amen.